0: We've been looking at confidence in salvation and we have uh, looked at a couple different areas. And we're going to uh, continue looking at a few more. Uh, and and the, reason, the reason we're looking at this comes a lot of it from the basis of the scripture where it uh, admonishes us to be ready to give an answer if someone asks for the hope that's in us. And we have to have some assurance or some confidence in, in, the, in the idea that what I'm doing is right so that I can direct others. Paul says follow me as I follow Christ. Uh, That seems like a proud, arrogant statement if you think about it. Do what I'm doing because I'm doing it right. Uh, It's not written in pride, it's just in the fact that there's confidence in what he's doing. The scripture is not confusing. If the scripture is very clear on what must I do to be saved, repent, be baptized, and be filled with the Holy Ghost, Paul says, I'm worried lest you become turned from the simplicity of the gospel. I don't think that once you go through a new birth experience, it suddenly becomes some extremely complicated thing to live for the Lord, because believe it or not, think about it this way, because some people think it's some great, mysterious thing. Did you know that the Lord wants you to be saved? Did you know that? So while he's thinking, boy, I want everyone to be saved, I'm just going to make this the most complicated thing possible so that people know... (laughs) That's not what he did. Okay, so the the issue comes, we like to complicate it, right? By the way, it's good to have Heather today. Good to have her in church today. We're so glad that she's here. And so that that scripture challenges me because I have to have some sort of uh, uh, confidence in in what I'm doing if I'm going to direct others to do something. Uh, So we talked about first about walking in the light, what that means. And we're not going to get into a deep review of all this, just a quick overview. But walking in the light does not mean that I have to live my life sinless, that I have to be perfect, although I am striving for perfection, but we talked about how it speaks more to my habits. What do I usually do? Is my habit to walk in the light or is my habit to walk in darkness? And then when I realize... Because I understand, as John says, that the person who says there's no sin in their life has deceived themselves. When I realize there's wrong in my life, when I realize there's sin or a weight in my life that I need to fix, what is my habit then? To walk in the light, my habit, when wrong is discovered, needs to be repentance. That's a key part to whether I'm walking in the light. Uh, Because I could be doing uh, good things, but if I refuse to change when something's pointed out, then I begin to walk into darkness. And so repentance must be a key part of me walking in the light. Then last week we talked about another aspect. We talked about loving a brother and what that all entails. And we talked about the dangers of having an issue or even that word hatred that John uses, even an indifference towards my brother. First thing it does is it puts a stumbling block in my own way. And we talked about how there's all sorts of things trying to trip us up and tear us down. I don't need to try to be doing it to myself. So it puts a stumbling block in our own way. We start tripping over stuff, and then it also deceives and blinds me. So when I have hatred or indifference towards my brother, I suddenly become deceived. I can no longer see, and it's very specific in that I can no longer discern between what is right and true and what is wrong. So then I end up making dumb decisions because I begin to justify, I begin to think that what's wrong is right and what's right is wrong. And so we've, we, we looked at all that, and we looked at how my starting place for loving a brother, and this is very important because you know what? If you live for the Lord any amount of time, you might have an issue with your brother, even if it's just a personality clash, or it'd be better if we don't talk, or whatever it may be. But my starting point for loving my brother is not my brother or sister, but my starting point is his love for me. I love you, first of all, not because of what you have done, or even because you deserve it. But the reason, my starting point for loving you is the agape love, which remember we talked about is undeserved love. I cannot give undeserved love to God because he deserves it all, but I love you first because he saw of what he did in my life. He saw me in my sins, in my shame, my undeservedness, if that's a word, and he loved me when I did not deserve it. So because he did that for me, I need to reciprocate that and do that for everyone else if I want to show his love. That's my starting point. My starting point is not the person's faults, failures, what they're good at, what they're not. My starting point for loving a brother or sister is because he first loved me. And then we ended talking about what, uh, what the Spirit is calling, and the Spirit is calling out come, the Spirit and the bride. And the reminder that if I ever get out of alignment with the phrase, whosoever will let him come, and that begins to cloud my judgment, then it's very simple, I'm out of alignment with the Spirit. If I begin to qualify and uh, uh, begin to uh, put my own uh, ideas on who should come to the Lord and whether that person should or shouldn't be in the church, uh, then I'm going against what the Spirit has said, because the Spirit says, whosoever will, let him come. And this week, we're going to continue on with another fruit or proof of our salvation. And let me just uh, uh, tell you right off the bat that this is going to be two weeks, because once I got into it, I don't know, a fortnight, there you go. It's going to be two weeks. But we are going to be looking at abiding in Him. Abide in Him. (coughs) Excuse me. Get out of my system here. (laughs) I'm still having some issues with my sinuses despite surgery. (laughs) Sometimes when I wake up, First thing in the morning, I stand up, I don't because I've been laying down, but you know that song, Let the River Flow? Just uh, <laughs> The one morning I was struggling because I went to the bathroom first, and I was like, there's, uh, there's, there's uh, the rivers flowing here from my nose, and I couldn't get toilet paper off, so I, was, this, I just grabbed the roll of toilet paper and just stuck it to my nose. It was a bad situation. But we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about abiding in Him. <laughs> we won't talk about rinsing my nose out. And <laughs> okay. So, abiding in Him. Let's get back on topic. Thank you for taking me off topic. 1 <laughs> John chapter 2, verses 24-28 through 28 give us this little passage here. And it's throughout John, but this is uh, kind of the, 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 the heart of what he's talking about, abiding in Him. It says, let that therefore abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If that which you have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, you also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he hath promised us, eternal life. These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. But the anointing which you have received of him abideth in you. And you need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, And even as it hath taught you, you shall abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. And we mentioned this verse before. You know what? I don't want to live my life in fear that I'm not going to make it. This verse says that when he appears, I can have confidence. You know what? That's what I want. I don't want to have to, I mean, there's, and we've talked about it, there is an aspect that I don't know that I'm 100% saved until I make it to heaven, but you know what, I don't want the trump of God to scare me and make me worried, I want it to be something that I'm eagerly anticipating, and if I, Brother Gene said the the other week about, I use these words to comfort, that the Lord's coming back soon. You know what, that word is not a comfort if I'm not sure that I'm going up. How can those words comfort you if you're not even sure you're saved? Okay, so if I want heaven to be a comfort in my life, I've got to have some assurance of my salvation that the way I'm living, although I do have mistakes and imperfections, my habits, anyway, we've already done all that stuff. Let's move on. John tells us that we should abide in him so when he returns, we will not be ashamed before him. It literally means to have boldness when you stand before him, to have confidence In your salvation. And that word abide means to dwell, to continue, to remain, to tarry. It has the idea of permanence, a place that I have decided to stay. It could be said, a place that you would call home. So, for the rest of this lesson, we're talking about abiding in Him. We're still talking about that, but I'd like to to change the background of the slides here. And I want to ask you this question simply, what's your address? What's your address? Where do you live? Where are you abiding? Where have you decided to take up residence? What are the places in your life that even though circumstances may try to take you away from, even though life tries to pull you away from certain things, you know that there's certain places in your life that you can find rest, that you can find security, that you can find comfort in. So that's what we're going to be looking at is some things that Scripture tells us that we should abide in, that we should be comfortable with, that we should know as our home. And John tells us, that was a little strange, John tells us in this passage to abide in the things that we have heard from the beginning. What were those things? Because these are two things that I'm supposed to abide in, a few things here. Hebrews tells us what they are. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 2 says, for unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Now, these first two that we're supposed to dwell in, I'm sure that you could come up with them on your own, but we're going to talk about them anyway. The author of Hebrews tells us that it was the Word that started our whole walk with God. It was the Word that started it. It was the Word preached. When I speak of the Word, we're speaking in a general sense and not strictly just of the Bible, of the Word of God, although this is included in that. We know that no man comes to the father unless the spirit draws them and I believe that the spirit drawing is the word in action drawing us towards him. Paul tells us the tells the Romans that how salvation came he says so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We find that the word of God is the starting point for my salvation experience whether it was in a service that you heard the word preached whether it was by yourself somewhere and the word of God convicted you. The Word of God is the starting point of my salvation experience. I must have faith to activate the blood and the gospel in my life, and that faith comes by the Word of God. When you came to the Lord, it was the Word that brought you to that point. It was the Word that convinced you that He was faithful and just to forgive sins, no matter what they were. It was the Word that convinced you that whosoever will, let Him come, and that included you. It was the Word that that convinced you that Christ did not die just for the righteous, but He died for sinners like you and I. It was the Word that told me that there was a gift for me. It was the gift of God, and it was eternal life, and that I could possess that in my life. The Word was the beginning of your walk with God, and I must continue to dwell in the Word. It's what started me on this path, and I've got to continue to dwell in it. I want to challenge you to not be a renter when it comes to the Word. We're talking about what's your address. Don't rent out the Word of God. It should be a place of permanence in your life. And what I mean by that is when you rent something, it's not your own. And you know what? If you decide just to quit paying, you'll get kicked out eventually, but you can just quit paying. And if you decide, you know what, the hot water's busting, all this stuff, you can just leave and trash it, do whatever you want. Now, it's not very nice to do that. I wouldn't encourage you to do that. But a renter does not own the house. He can pick up and move and his address changes. You know what? You need to make the word of God something of permanence in your life. If it was good enough to save me, if it was good enough to start me on this journey, it's good enough to keep me saved in my life. It's, be- it's, it's, it's not better, but it's more than just Acts 2.38 in my life. It'll keep me saved in my life if I find myself in the word of God. Job chapter 23 says, Neither have I gone back from the commandment of, a, of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary foods and then jeremiah says something similar thy words were found and i did eat them and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart we find that jeremiah and job wanted the word of god so much a part of themselves that they liken it to digesting the word inside of them psalms 119 says thy word have i hid in my heart that i might not sin against thee his words should become ingested part of my system if you will. His words should be hid in the deepest parts of me. I need to make my dwelling place in the Word of God. It tells me in in Scripture that everything is going to pass away at some point, except my soul, which is eternal, and the Word of God. This world will pass away. All my feelings, all my desires, everything that that seems so important right now is going to pass away, but the Word of God is going to dwell forever. I need to put myself, bury myself in something that's permanent, something that will not fade something that will not rust or moth will take it away i need to find myself in the word john chapter 8 says then said jesus to those jews which believed on him if you continue in my word then are you my disciples indeed i want to remind you that when troubles hit that when things arise there's a lot of places that you can turn to there are There's a lot of things that I can turn to and some of them seems to be good options but I want my address when troubles hit I want to make my way home to the Word of God. I want to find my guidance in the Word of God because His Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway. I want the Word to be a place of safety and security and peace and rest. Let me just challenge you that if the Word of God is not your dwelling place then the Word does not become a place of safety, security, and peace. (laughs) You ever not read the Word of God for a while? You don't have to raise your hand. And then all of a sudden you read it and you get convicted, then you don't want to read it no more, right? (laughs) But if the Word of God is not my dwelling place, it's going to be one of the last things I turn to because when I open its pages, that's what it's going to do. It's going to convict me, it's going to judge me because it's not my home. If it's my home, though, I can turn to this book and I'll find the peace I need. I'll find the joy I need. I'll find security when I need it. I want it to be a part of my life. John tells us to abide in the things that we have heard from the beginning. I've got to abide in the Word of God because it's what started it all. But it says, it suggests that there's more than one thing. And we read in Hebrews, it tells us that the other, what the other first thing was. And that is faith. I want to dwell in faith you see that verse tells us that the word has to be mixed with my faith now the word is powerful but let me tell you let me remind you that the word has always been there have you always lived for the Lord the word was there when you weren't living for the Lord did it have power then did it have more or less power no it's the same here's the deal though While you were not living for the Lord, the word had power, yet it did not transform your life, it did not change or impact your life until, as Hebrews tells us, your faith enacted its power. The word of God has power in everybody's life today, it doesn't matter if they're sitting here or wherever they're sitting today, but that doesn't mean it has power acting in their life because it tells us in Hebrews it didn't do anything because the word of God wasn't mixed with faith. Just like Jesus died for everybody, but not everybody saved. Because there has to be action upon my part to enact the blood in my life. Amen. So just the same with the Word. I've got to have the Word in my life, but I've got to have faith in my life as well. And I want to challenge you today to make your address faith, to continue to dwell in faith. The things which we had from the beginning of our walk with God was the Word and faith enacted a salvation experience in my life. Colossians 1.22 says, In the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable, that's a big word, unreprovable in his sight. Made it through. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereby Paul am made a minister. He tells us to continue in the faith, grounded and settled. I need to continue in my faith. Paul tells us, those words grounded and settled, which means to get a good, grounded foundation and to not be moved away from that faith. In fact, it's the same language, it's not used very often in the scripture, but it's the same language that's used in the story, the parable that Jesus tells. In Luke chapter 6, it says, he is like a man which built an house and dig deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat violently upon that house and could not shake it for it was found in... Upon a rock scripture tells us what that rock is scripture tells us that the rock is jesus christ But it wasn't enough just to have jesus christ the man built his house He had to dig deep into jesus christ It wasn't enough just to have the rock there, but it was digging deep into the rock My faith needs to be dug deep into jesus christ My faith needs to be something that cannot be moved. It needs to be something settled in my life Now that's very important for us to understand because this world will do anything to shake your faith. In fact, scripture tells us there's coming a time when anything that can be shaken will be shaken. I do not want my faith shaken in that day. There's a lot of things that, man, we could go way off about stuff that's trying to uh, shake our faith and, and change our mindset, change what we believe. And and, and that's just in the world in general But you know what Well anyway we won't go off on tangents But the challenge for me Is in the face of culture Trying to tell me that my faith is stupid That's what it's trying to tell me That I'm ignorant Because of my faith It doesn't matter my education It doesn't matter uh, what words I use My position or power If I have faith I am ignorant You know what that, that can begin to sway me if I'm not entrenched in my faith. If I'm not grounded in my faith. I need, to be, I need to make sure that I'm dug deep into Jesus Christ. Because if there was ever a time, now's the time when I can't quit believing in Jesus Christ. I need to stand firm in who He is. My faith was what started this whole thing. It was your faith that brought you to an altar or whatever it was in your life. The Word of God was mixed with your faith and it brought you to an altar. Don't let go of that faith now. Don't let go of the faith that brought you to salvation. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, it says, Looking unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus started out my faith. He was the first one to write a word about my faith. And scripture tells us that a measure of faith is given to every person. That, gee, I didn't come up with faith on my own. I didn't conjure it up by myself. But to every person is given a measure of faith Meaning it starts with God being the author in my life. And this verse tells me that he's not just the author, but he is the finisher of my faith. And if you were in the James class at all we taught last year, this word finisher is, the, is, a, word, is a variation of the word teleos. Which we talked about in James, that there's a completed end. It's a finished perfect ending. And finisher refers to one who has in his own person raised faith to its Perfection. And so set it before us as the highest example of faith, which is what Jesus did He took faith to such a level that he brought it to perfection in his own life And now what stands before us as an example of faith his example was a life lived by faith through every persecution Through every trial through every heartache his life proves to me that faith works His life should prove to me that faith works despite how his life ended naturally His life ended on a cross. His life ended in pain. His life ended in shame. But and and, and we look to the ultimate defeat. But he finished his life. He finished his course in faith. No matter what happened to him, it was faith that made his life complete, and it worked. His faith took him through the cross. His faith took him all the way to the right hand of God, that verse tells us in Hebrews chapter 12. It took him to a heavenly tabernacle. He did not ask you to believe, to walk, to, to, to walk on a path that he had not already taken, but he has already completed the course because he finished it. And so because he set an example before me, because he is both the author, he gave me the faith, and I see a completed faith in his life, I'm going to keep holding on to faith. I can't quit believing in my salvation. I can't quit believing in healing. I can't quit believing that he's still a provider, but he's still a way maker. I can't quit believing that he will return. I've got to make my dwelling place in faith today. I'm thankful for his example of faith because he did it, I can too. You know, it's real easy for us just to, I know he was fully man and fully God and we take out the aspect of being a man, but he was a man. He just didn't suddenly slip into some God mindset and it no longer hurt him. He didn't suddenly just see his friend Lazarus die. And he's like, well, I'm God now, so and it doesn't affect me because I know I'm going to see him again in eternity, so it doesn't bother me. No, he wept because his heart was broken because his friend died. He went through human experiences as a human. And his faith brought him through. I'm challenging you today that your faith needs to be your address. Something you return to. No matter what happens in your life, I'm grounded In faith. I'm grounded in the word. I'm grounded in faith. I dwell in unity. I dwell in unity. Now this kind of ties in with what we talked a little bit about last week with loving your brother. But I dwell in unity. Psalms chapter 133.1 says. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. By the way this is my last point so you know there's an end. I want to find my address, my dwelling place in unity. First Corinthians 1.10 says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. That's one of those verses that you read, and you read it and you think, yeah, that's really good. Then just stop and think about it. You all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind. (laughs) You think we really all speak the same thing? Gibberish. No. (laughs) And it says, in the same mind and in the same judgment. Man, that's a lot of sames. Wow. No divisions among you. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 2 says, Fulfill ye my joy that you be like-minded having the same love, being of one accord, <clears throat> of one mind. That, that's challenging to me because I know that when people are gathered together, it's hard to get one mind. There is something that is found in unity, though, that cannot be found anywhere else. I want to dwell in unity. Ecclesiastes tells us two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, they have heat, but how can one be warm alone? A space heater, there you go. (laughs) And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. The reason I want to make unity my dwelling place, the reason I want that to be my address is because there's a strength that can only be found in unity. There's something that comes when I join with others that I cannot get by myself. I can do more work, the first verse says. It says if, someone, if I fall, then there's someone there to lift me up. Galatians chapter uh, 6 tells us, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. That I have an obligation, and that there's a calling on my life, no matter what it is, to bear someone else's burden. It's interesting in that chapter because it tells us to bear ye your own burdens as well. Some things you've got to go through by yourself. And there's some things that the body of Christ needs to help you with. And I've got to be willing to help out. It tells me that if I prevail against some, if someone prevails against me, then two will be able to withstand that person. And that verse tells us that the threefold cord is not quickly or easily broken. Understand the strength that I get through unity is not incrementally increased, but it's exponentially increased. Now, an exponent, an exponent. Sorry, non-exponent, an, an exponent. You ever seen a number written and it's got like, uh, you know, a ten and then there's a little three that's written up higher? Ten to the power of three. That means there's three zeros. It's an exponent. It's it's something. It's an exponent. <laughs> if I write ten to the power of four. You know what that does? It adds another zero. So 10 to the power of 3 would be 1,000. Is that right? Any math whizzes here? Okay. 10 to the power of 4 would be what? 10,000. 10 to the power of 5 would be? 10 to the power of 6? 10 to the power No, I won't keep going. But it increases exponentially. You're not adding 1. That's increments. 1 plus 1 is 2. Two plus one is three. That's not how it works. It's not when two people get together it makes two and then when three people get together it makes three. It's to the power of when there's unity. There's a strength that can only come through unity. It increases beyond the sum of who I am. (laughs) Now I know there's times that we think we're big and bad and can take on the world. Then we wake up. But when I'm united together, there's a strength that comes beyond the great, however, whatever greatness or strength I can conjure in myself. Unity should be a place that I'm comfortable in. It should be a place that I seek to return to. Now understand that not everyone every time is comfortable with the word unity because the reality becomes that sometimes for unity, that means that uh, it's not always my way. But sometimes I'm the one who has to bite the bullet for there to be unity. That's why unity is not really comfortable all the time. Unity does not mean that everyone gets along and agrees with me all the time, although they should. No, I'm joking. For there to be unity, I might have to be reconciled with someone. Well, and to be reconciled simply means you've got to ask for their forgiveness. Now, I don't know about you. But, man, I really don't enjoy that. I, you know what I like doing? I like taking that to the Lord. <laughs> that's what I like doing. I've got something against someone. Well, I'll, I'll take that to the altar and I'll pray about it at the altar and pray the Lord takes it out of me. <laughs> well, see, it's in those issues that suddenly I don't want to be part of the Bible church. Because <laughs> that's a whole lot easier. Because scripture tells me, now before you come and take it to the Lord, you need to go reconcile yourself with the person. That means you have to confront someone face to face, look them in the eye and say, I'm wrong. Would you please forgive me? And we could go even farther because then scripture makes it just ridiculous. You know, we've talked about how my flesh just hates some stuff. It really hates the other part of that too because it also says, if I know that my brother has ought against me I gotta go reconcile that that's really that's just silly scriptures we'll rip that one out if they got a problem with me they can come tell me (laughs) unfortunately that's not what Jesus said but unity means that I've got to be willing to do those things in my life I might have to be reconciled with someone I might have to back down off of my position I might have to bite my tongue, and sometimes you actually have to end up biting it. I might have to pray about some things in my life. Scripture gives us warnings about what can happen when division enters in. And and, and this is in Mark chapter 3. It says, if a kingdom be divided against itself, that cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that cannot stand. It says, if there's division in a house, it can't work. Now let me remind you. That we are the church, we are the bride of Christ, that if anyone's supposed to be united it's supposed to be us. Do you know what Jesus is talking about in those verses? This is where they come to Jesus and they say, you know what, you're of the devil. And he says, now hold on a minute, why would the devil be casting out the devil? That doesn't make sense. And then he says, hell knows, in essence, a house divided against itself can't stand. Hell knows the power of unity greater than the church. We have an all-powerful God, so, you know, we don't don't need, the the enemy knows they need to unite together. Hell knows unity better than we do because they know if they start going off all their own different ways and, and, and one devil says, I want to do this, another one says, I want to do this, it will fall. But we're all right with doing that amongst ourselves. A divided house cannot stand and that house could represent a marriage. A marriage divided against itself cannot stand. I want to dwell in unity. You know what? I try awful hard. I mean, I try really hard sometimes to get my own way all the time. But sometimes uh, my wife has to win. I let her win. I mean, she's always right, but sometimes I'll let her win. Sometimes there's compromise that has to be made for unity. Because a marriage divide against itself can't stand. If I, if I don't have compromise in my marriage of some sort, then you know what? It's probably not going to last too long. Now, I've, I've not, I'm coming up for 15 years. That's a long time. And my wife's still just 22, it's crazy. (laughs) I've got to have unity in my family. You know what? Sometimes I've got to reconcile myself with my kids. I've got to have unity in my family. And let me say this, as a head of a household, if you're a head of a household, it's your responsibility to bring unity to your family. And if you're the issue, deal with yourself. That's all there is to it. It's not your wife's job to bring unity. It's not your kid's job to bring unity. It's your job. Sorry, I just throw that in there. I don't have a PowerPoint slide for that. I guess I could have just taken a picture of my family. No. (laughs) But a ministry that's divided can't stand. A ministry in the church, a praise team that's divided can't stand. A church that's divided against itself can't stand. And I've got to hurry up here. But division simply means... It simply means more than one division, more than one path, more than one direction. When I think of division, a lot of times in my mind, I don't know about yours, but I think of a bunch of people arguing and fighting and, 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 and all these different things going on. But division simply means there only has to be two, more than one. That's it. It doesn't have to be 16 different opinions, just two, for there to be division to happen. We find a story in Genesis that describes how a disunity can occur Genesis chapter 13 and Lot also which went with Abram had flocks and herds and tents and the land was not able to bear them that they might dwell together for their substance was great so that they could not dwell together and there was a strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle and the Canaanite and Perizzite dwelled then in the land. There's a phrase in there that tells us the reason they could not dwell together was because their substance had gotten so great. Now this is interesting to me because all of their substance had come from the blessings of God in their life. And all of a sudden what should have been something great, a blessing from God, now the blessings of God were the source of division. The blessings of God became a source of division. The substance was creating a separation of the actual family unit here of Abraham and Lot. Let me just remind you that I can never let things get in the way of unity. Things get in the way of unity. It's not good. But Abraham and Lot allowed a strife to enter, which is where the disunity entered. There was a conflict. There was a real problem. The land could not support both of them. So it wasn't some made-up problem. It wasn't that there was one well and they both wanted that same well. No, there was only one well, so they both had to use the same well. It was a real, valid problem. And nothing was done until strife entered the scene, until fighting broke out. Stuff kept going on in the background. When I think of disunity, I think of people fighting and doing all kinds of stuff. But let me remind you that unity is not the absence of conflict. Unity is not the absence of conflict. In fact, some of the greatest disunity can come from a lack of conflict. Now, understand here real quick, and I do have to finish up, that I'm going to talk about conflict here just for a minute, and we do have a business meeting tonight just to remind you. So I'm not tying the two together. (laughs) But let me say, just because you don't voice something publicly doesn't mean there isn't disunity. Disunity starts in my spirit behind the scenes and a lot of times we think well if I just don't say it publicly then it's all right No, that's not true at all in fact, we find that conflict is a natural part of life and, and We've done uh, different uh, personality things or whatever throughout the church and it's amazing to me how many of one type of personality there is in this church? And that personality, if you do the color test and life development, is blue. There's a bunch of blue personalities in this church. And one of the things that is like death, I mean, is the worst thing, is conflict. They just want everyone to get along. Let me just say, conflict is necessary sometimes. Now, you don't like that, do you? Especially all the blues. <laughs> but conflict is a part of life. Conflict is scriptural and here's the reason why is because a lot of times just because I don't voice the conflict publicly what it tends to do is brew inside of me and you know what even though I may look unified when I see everyone inside my spirit there's disunity and you know what scripture tells me that scares me to death even though I'm supposed to have confidence in my salvation is it says that when he comes back he's going to judge the hidden things of the heart. <laughs> stuff that no one else knows about throughout scripture we find conflicts that they happen amongst the early church in Acts chapter 15 if you read that chapter a council is called to decide what to do with the Gentiles it was a huge council it was everybody we've got to come together and decide because suddenly we were a Jewish church and God's opened the door to the Gentiles what do we do with this is it of God or is it not of God Wow you want to get a conflict started Ask people, is it of God or not of God? And you got people on both sides. And then let me remind you that, that on the one side is Peter and Paul. No way I like to get in an argument with them. you got loudmouth Peter and you got Paul who's educated. And Peter and Paul have gone at it face to face. The language used is they got up in each other's grills. That's the Greek. And they, they were close enough that the spit was hitting each other in the face. They were so upset about things. Now that's the apostle Peter and the apostle Paul. In the council at Jerusalem, it says there was great disputings. That doesn't mean that there was nice conversations going on. It was like the English parliament, if you've ever watched that, where all all they simply do is preface every barbed and harsh remark with the right honorable gentleman is an idiot. That doesn't change. That's what they do. It makes it nicer if you say the right honorable gentleman. There was disputings. A council was called. We find other instances where conflict arises. We find in Acts chapter 6 where a conflict arises because there are certain people that aren't... Uh, the widows aren't getting fed of a certain group and they come to the apostles. And a conflict arose. The issue is not if there is conflict because conflict is not always wrong. The issue is if there was no conflict resolution is where disunity comes in. This is important because... It's important on the resolution side. And understand that there has to be compromise given. Let's just take the Acts 6 example. They come and say, you know what, all the widows aren't getting fed. And it comes about, that the apostles said, we want to give ourselves to prayer and study of the word. Now let's just imagine that's a conflict. There's people that are upset. My mom's not getting fed. Bring people's family into it, you've got conflict. What if the apostles had just said, you know what? yes she's hungry but I'm called to preach the word and pray no there was a resolution that had to happen there ended unity out of the situation because they said we're called to do this but we're gonna find seven men to take over this thing and it satisfied everyone we find the the uh, council at Jerusalem in Acts 15 it ended at one point people had to concede on both sides they came out with some legislation four laws they started out with The Gentiles should do whatever they want. They're not under the law. It started out with Jews over here saying they should obey all the law. And they came to the middle of four laws they have to obey. And it says they left and there was rejoicing afterwards. After a conflict. There should be rejoicing as part of the solution to your conflict. It's important for us to understand that. We find in Acts chapter 2 verse 1 it says, that When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Who knows why the Holy Ghost fell at that moment? Who knows? Perhaps God had predestined it and designed it that the moment that when Pentecost was fully come, that's when I'm gonna do it. No matter who's there, what happens? I'm pouring out the Holy Ghost. Or perhaps the moment was when God saw they were all with one accord. Perhaps it was a little bit of both. But we do know what happened when a group of people got together and became of one mind and one accord. And let me remind you, three verses before, in the passages right before, they had, a, they had an, an area where there could have been conflict that needed resolved. There was 12 disciples, Judas betrayed, now there's 11, they thought they needed 12. I don't know why, but they thought they needed 12. And so they decided, two guys were brought forward, and they decided, now this blows my mind too, they decided how to pick the next disciple by drawing straws. Can can you imagine that? They said, we're going to take these straws, we're going to pray over them, and whoever whoever draws the short straw, that's going to be the one. Can you imagine? That's crazy to me. I don't know if it is to you. But Anyway, they had potential. There was people probably for both, and there was potential for conflict, but suddenly they find themselves... With all of that resolved, there's 12 disciples now, it's all resolved, and suddenly we find them all in one accord, and then the suddenly that we know about happens. There came a sound from heaven when one accord happened. Now understand that word for accord. It's a unique Greek word, and it's used mainly in the book of Acts, and it helps us understand the the uniqueness of the Christian first church. It's a compound word, that means two words together, and it means to rush along in unison. The image is, more, is really kind of a musical image. A number of notes which sounded together while different harmonized in pitch and tone. Well, it said in those verses, I'm supposed to be of the like mind, we're supposed to say the same thing, we're supposed to do the same thing, we're just supposed to be brainwashed, just robots who all do this. No, that's not what it is, because you know what? That's not Unity. Because God didn't make us all the same, in case you didn't notice. So how do we, with God making us with different personalities, different opinions, different everything, how do we come together in one mind and one accord? This verse tells us the word for accord. It's like a musical number being played, as the instruments at a great concert under the direction of a concert master play together a tune, harmonized, everything going together. I like that view of what a chord means, because if you know anything about music, when you harmonize with something, you're playing different notes. You're not playing the same thing. You see, while we think of unity as being the melody, which is the main part of the song, well, we've just all got to say the same thing, be the same thing, dress the same way, do, that's not how God made us. Does that mean that we just have to, I know we're supposed to die out to ourselves, that just mean we kill everything of ourselves so there's unity? No, because God gave us talents and abilities and gifts. Varying, so the body can be encouraged and perfected and grow But it does mean that not everyone's playing the melody. There's variances. There's differences But here's the deal while I may have this opinion while I may have have these thoughts and it may differ from this person when the spirit Brings us all together. I May not be playing the same note, but I may be harmonizing along with it And as long as I'm following after the spirit the spirit will bring together all of our differences and produce a masterpiece in the presence of God. You see, I may not be playing the same notes as the drums or the same notes as the trumpet or the same notes as the alto or the tenor. I may not be doing exactly the same thing, but when I'm following after the Spirit, although it may seem slightly different, the Spirit has a way of putting us all together in unity. I've got to be in, in, in one accord with the Spirit of God. You see, I'm not going to try and change the way I think to Lynn. Because I don't have three lifetimes. I'm joking. But you know what? If she tunes herself to the Spirit of God, if Craig tunes him, himself to the Spirit of God, if Erica tunes herself to the Spirit of God, and I tune myself to the Spirit of God, we may not all have the same note, but you know what? When, the, when we're connected with the Spirit, suddenly something beautiful happens. Just like, you know what, when service starts and we begin to worship, you may not lift your hands like the person next to you. You may not run the aisles. You may weep while someone's laughing. It it can be a variety of things, yet it's worship, a harmony, a beautiful symphony to God. You know what, that's the unity we're seeking for. It's not that, you know what, we're all the same. We all have to do exactly the same. No, I'm tuned to the Spirit of God in my life. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3 says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace and you know what happens is sometimes the spirit tells me I'm out of line Sometimes the spirit tells me you know what this isn't right and so then if i'm walking in the light What do I do? I repent of my ways. I repent of those feelings I repent of those thoughts and I get back in unity with the spirit of God And I enter this place on a Sunday believing that you're in unity with the spirit of God So that when I lift my hands when I respond to the presence of God I believe you're doing the same thing and there's something wonderful happening That's why when we come together something happens that can't happen by ourselves. There's a strength there when we're all tuned into the spirit of God God. I want my address to be the Word. I want my address to be faith. I want my address to be unity. I want to abide in these things. I'm not going to let anything take me away from the Word of God. I'm not going to let anything destroy my faith, and I'm not going to let anything destroy the unity of the body of Christ and my unity with the Spirit in my life. If I want to have confidence in my salvation, I need those things, the Word, faith, and unity. I want us to stand this morning. And I want us to pray the Lord would challenge us in those areas.